0: Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. We are here in studio for another episode of In the Landscape. I'm your host, Kate Sadler, and with me in the studio is my co-host, Charles. Hi.
1: Good to be here.
0: Good to be here. Welcome back. Yeah, we're actually here for another week and excited to have an episode in store for you all listening. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. And last week was a little bit of a departure because we talked about the podcast itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the sort of motivation for doing it and some some tips, I hope. <laughs> you know, clearly we're not the world's most famous podcasters, but we've kept the show going for a little while now. And, and I think that just lends itself to some credibility on like, if if you want to do this as enthusiasts, maybe not professionals, but enthusiasts at a a high level, they're, you know, it's open and accessible. So we hope people had
1: fun with that episode. An element of encouragement. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We're dealing a little bit with allergies here. I think (laughs) I can go back and listen to how many episodes I mention are allergies because I'm so conscious of it as a voice, you know, person when it starts to affect us. I know Texas has a lot of grasses. Did you found out how many flowers? You were saying something about the flowers here in Texas. Oh right, it
1: was one of the like environmental websites that lists mm-hmm. like the native flowers of Texas. It was a by color, so like all the mm-hmm. shades of yellow of each color, mm-hmm. and for each color there were hundreds of flowers. I was like shocked. I mean, I, I know there's a lot, but you think of there's maybe like what like eight major colors, mm-hmm. and there's hundreds of flowers for each color, so wow. like thousands of or it's definitely over a thousand. I'm going to guess native wildflowers in Texas. <laughs> There's almost, as far as I can tell, twelve months a year there is some wildflower that's doing something <laughs> that is like going to with whether it's forming seeds mm-hmm. or flowers or mm-hmm. it's pretty incredible.
0: Well, and the muley grasses are starting to bloom, so it's a, it's just evidence that grasses bloom here too. And,
1: uh, and those are like late season where it's
0: trees. <laughs> the trees
1: are doing something in the muley grass. There's different versions of it, but the pinkish tone is what. It's so pretty, and it's not hardy. I mean, up until recently, as you get into the in a temperate climate, like in New York State, I don't. It's I don't think it's reasonable to grow it mm-hmm. year in year out. Mm-hmm. But there are people in the Mid Atlantic growing it. Like when I'm down in mm-hmm. Philadelphia at conferences, some of those universities that have really like redone the campus as a botanic garden, so it's a nice place for students and teachers to mm-hmm. live and work. And I remember being there in the fall and seeing it. I mean, just this purple cloud of this pinkish purple.
0: Almost ephemeral. And I'm sure the trees here bloom too. We've seen some fall blooming trees. Anyway, all that to say, it's a lot.
1: Right. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of pollen out there. A lot
0: of pollen out there. And apparently cedar is a big one here in Texas as Mm. well. So there's a cedar season, which I swear I mentioned... This time last year on the podcast, but it's just, it's, we're still sort of getting acclimated to it and like, Mm -hmm. you know,
1: we're in the landscape, we're experiencing it all. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So it's
0: been nice to get out and experience it and, uh, and then come back to the house and and take care of those allergies. So Mm -hmm. anyway, your voice is a little impacted today. So I don't know, some listeners may not even notice, but
1: (laughs) a little gravelly, but just
0: in case, yeah, just in case you're wondering. So let's see. We always like to catch folks up on what's cooking at King Garden, which is our design practice. Sort of at the beginning of the episode, that way, if you have any <laughs> desire to skip it, you can get to the the topic at hand in a, in just a couple minutes. We're having a lot of fun with the garden shop, so we, oh, we right. have these gorgeous Bergen and Ball tools, many of which are a whole like section of which. So, so they have some that are endorsed by the Royal Royal Horticultural <laughs> Society. I'm going to trip over that every time. And then a whole set that were designed in partnership with a designer in England, Sophie Conran. And so, the even the packaging is like velvety as you're like opening the box and right. pulling out these shears. So, it's, it's a nice fun. experience. Yeah, it's just fun to be repping that brand. <laughs> I don't know, you know, it was just a venture we decided to get into. And so far, it seems to be going well. And folks seem to be excited to have access to that. And those. to
1: be shipping it all over the US. It's interesting to see where people you know, all over. Yeah. I mean, places we, of course, we know of the place, but it's places that we haven't visited, many of them. Mm-hmm. We'll yeah. Which neat to see. It is
0: very. And so we're starting to look into doing sort of an online design shop as well. One of the things we, we think we've kind of received feedback that folks are looking for are not ready designs. I mean, we really enjoy the process, this sort of iterative design process of, really tailoring things to a specific program and a specific growing zone. But there are ways to kind of like mix and match plants that we think might be a good resource for, for folks who just mm-hmm. kind of need a list to take to their nursery to start putting together ideas. Right. And so those should be available as like a, a digital product. And hopefully there's some need out there that we'll be filling.
1: Maybe you spend a lot of time on the plant palettes. Mm-hmm. From client to client, we reuse the same plants to a good extent. I mean, it's, it's not the same palette for every house, but there's trends. Like if it's a sunny home and they want certain colors or certain colors, certain times of the year, there's going to be dependable plants. Because I mean, we know, I remember when I was starting out, I was working under a senior landscape architect and I said, oh, let's have blueberry bushes as a front foundation planting. And so blueberry bushes are not that dependable. Their (laughs) soil requirements are very specific. Mm -hmm. And I remember him saying, well, that's very innovative. There'd be like great fall color. It has fruit. But he was uncomfortable. He said, like, we're going to put our, we're going to stand behind that. This Mm -hmm. is going to succeed. And it wasn't that dependable. So I learned when you do a design, I mean, you're standing behind saying, this is like, to the best of my ability, this is going to succeed. Yeah. I mean, almost 100%. Like, of course, it's, there's always some mortality. Like it's yeah. about maybe 10% when you do big plantings, you lose, like if you do a hundred daylilies, lilies, maybe you lose 10, mm-hmm. but that's, uh, you account for that.
0: So the idea is to have it be sort of
1: horticulturally and
0: design informed and and tailored to specific regions. So it's likely to grow where you are. And of course, I mean, there are many fabulous books out there. There's like those plant books that have color wheels and all that exciting stuff. So Maybe there's a market, maybe there's not, I guess mm-hmm. we'll find out. But yeah, just kind of like a one-sheeter that you can kind of like take and trust that these plants tend to grow well together. They tend to grow well in your region and with the conditions mm-hmm. that we sort of describe in the description. And and hopefully that helps people along the process. And
1: the, like, well, factors are like the deer tolerance. Yeah, that's, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Almost always, if it's a suburban landscape or, or rural, it's almost always somewhat of an issue. like. If there's not deer where you are, there may be in the future. So we always bring that up. Like if you don't have a fence, you may have, if you're a daylily collector in the Midwest, you might have a deer problem at some point. So it's good to have it on your radar (laughs) if you don't already
0: now we've we've talked about our online courses before. We have we're getting more and more of our asynchronous courses completed and uploaded, so that listing will continue to expand as we find the time. Fall's a busy busy design season, so hopefully, as we head into winter, we'll be kind of doing more of the production on our courses. But you've been invited to do a couple of courses with two different right. hosts, basically. So you're you're teaching the class, and they're kind of hosting the event. So. If you're interested in doing one of our, our live synchronous courses and maybe mm-hmm. even seeing like a live pruning demo, <laughs> we'll go ahead and get that information posted on our social media sites. And you can always sign up for our newsletter. We like to kind of announce where you'll be. Um, mm-hmm. It'd be great if you were out there giving live talks. Like we were just kind of in the process of just before everything shut down. But it's wonderful to have these online opportunities. And, you know, there's usually a QA and a section. Depending on the format, so folks can really like engage with you and ask their questions. So mm-hmm. if you're like listening, and we kind of skip over a subject, and you're like, wait, right?
1: But, uh, For the uh, longer format, yeah. like when I've done courses, like a live webinar where it's all day. There's mm-hmm. like a morning, a lunch break, afternoon. There, yeah, we really work in a lot of student participation. Yeah, absolutely. Where like every sort of section, I'll mm-hmm. pause and I'll say, I'll put a photo up, and okay, now we just discussed this subject. What do people think is is the solution with this?
0: Right. So we can, yeah, we we do try to share those opportunities. So if I mean it's it may be of no interest, but if it is of some interest, uh, we'll try to make sure we we put that information out there so folks can interact live. And the just... one
1: that we were going to speak mm-hmm. in person, I was going to speak in person, was a Los Angeles Landscape Expo. Yeah, that's that was right. going to be at the Convention Center, yeah. which is like I don't know if it's, it's if it's the harbor, but it's in that vicinity, It's sort of like mm-hmm. right on the water.
0: Mm. Which is interesting because you have never been to Los Angeles. I never have
1: of all the places. Actually
0: ties in with our topic a little bit today (laughs) because we're gonna be talking about gardens in film. Yeah. I grew up in Northern California, essentially. I mean, it's like middle, but it's in the northern part. There's a lot of northern California yet to go before you hit Oregon. But the San Francisco Bay Area is is north of LA. But we would go down there on family vacations. And I did have an opportunity to sing at that. I think you're reading the biography of the architect who designed oh, right. it. Frank yeah, Gehry. The Walt Disney Concert Hall. It has a formal name. I'm sure I'm not getting it exactly right. But yes, had an opportunity to sing there for a project. And L.A. is a really odd and and storied kind of part of American you know, there's old culture LA. and history. You see that in the
1: movie sometimes. Yeah. The so. Art Deco, the 1920s and
0: 30s. Yeah, a city that kind of grew up out of the out of the desert that is you know southern california it's in a way like wholly designed and yet it wasn't necessarily cohesively designed as we've talked about mm. kind of in our urban and and suburban and, and rural series but you know it's still the place where hollywood is where like the, our, our conception of american popular
1: culture was right. created Film, television yeah awesome music mm-hmm. i mean there's okay. other cities for music but Definitely a lot of music in LA.
0: Yeah. So we thought we would do a little bit of a mix of kind of talking about gardens in popular culture while we describe the design principles that make on, you know, film gardens appear so compelling, like as as backdrops or whatever scene, you know, for the action. Yes. So sort of a mix of culture and design and see how that goes for us an
1: episode this week. It's something, I mean, the television and film, it's so fleeting. I mean, they're mm-hmm. shooting it for a day. So some of it, will it go on to live forever? I mean, maybe not. Some film and television, it's consumed and then it might not be part of culture forever. But there is something that goes on to go on to live on forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a long, long time.
0: So it's funny because one of the reasons this topic came up as we were discussing the episode for this week was I'm watching a couple of shows that I won't mention what they are, but they are like purportedly set in certain places. And one, I mean, one of them is supposed to be filmed, supposed to be in New York, and it's clearly not New York. Like, I was five minutes into it, and I'm like, wait a minute, where is this? And then the other one is supposed to be an estate in England and it does not, it doesn't read like one. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons it doesn't is I think the plants aren't right, you know, which is, you know, I was kind of excited because it means I've been in the landscape business a while, (laughs) but there's just something about using inauthentic plants that, I mean, and then the joke is always that like every, every alien planet for a long time was like the hills of California. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what is it about getting plants right visually that is, that speaks to us so immediately and how, how do we do that kind of correctly in an aesthetic sense?
1: Well, my sense is that it's some of my graduate school research was on the restorative powers of nature and of plants. And then like, why is it restorative? Mm-hmm. So if something is inauthentic, we can sense if it's like a fake plant. I mean, here in Texas, artificial turf, there's all different words for it, but it's like fake lawn. <laughs> it's pretty darn good. And so in some, if it's a high use area, like a circular you know, lawn area for children to play in a public space, like in our town, there's like a village center. Mm-hmm. In some backyards where it's shady, it's like a small property in Houston. I guess it depends what the program is, and in that case, it actually does work because it's not a matter of being restored. It's like for it to look green is more appealing than concrete. Many people would say, and then there's real plants surrounded by that in profusion. So it's Mm -hmm. and the grass is only like an inch and a half, two inches tall. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When it's a big element though, and it's wrong, like the, I mean, plants are phototropic, so they. Even during the day, throughout the course of the day, the leaves will shift mm. to face the sun. Mm-hmm. We've had people call us with where they transplanted large boxwood and they put them in place and the leaves were all going the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. They said it looks like the if it was a, a solar panel, it would be like crooked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, because where the, the way it was growing, that was probably where the sun was. And then that was radically shifted. And the plant, it's not gonna shift. It's woody growth overnight.
0: Yeah, it's like the, the non-woody growth is what we may think of because we can think of our, you know, herbs in a pot, you know, and the windowsill start to bend toward the light pretty readily during the day. But you can't shift everything <laughs> instantaneously. It's
1: right. so like to yeah. face a plant where you find the flattering side. Mm. And when it's grown in a nursery, there's always a sunny side. Mm-hmm. It, if you're in different hemispheres, it would be different you're on the equator but there's always be a side that's more favorable Mm -hmm. so in movies it would be getting that right Mm -hmm. so that it's it looks authentic the plant is facing the sun when you don't get it right you notice it so i watch Mm -hmm. movies i'm not looking for it but things jump out at me all the time yeah i think that is it's supposed to be this climate that wouldn't be possible like it's supposed to be british columbia but there's a plant that is in like Southern California. So probably isn't really British Columbia.
0: (laughs) Which happens, you know, I mean, also when they were picking up sound on on older films, you'll hear California quail or, or, you know, birds that are native or, you know, I mean, there are other little, little fudges they make. Like, I think they always use hawk sounds for eagles and stuff. So (laughs) if there's anything quirky you'd like to share that you've noticed in film, please feel free. It's just kind of a fun topic, but I think what it is, is it helps sort of inform our visual acuity a little bit. If you are into this subject and you notice that you're noticing, and I think that's maybe what happened for me was, oh, you know, I, I don't get to live in New York anymore, but boy, I sure loved it and walked around every square inch that I could. And and I still have that sense, that physical, visual sense of the city that when I see something claiming to be New York that isn't, it's like, nope, not the right.
1: Spatial. Yeah. They use like Toronto a lot. And and they might use some other Canadian cities for New York because mm-hmm. it's for different reasons, economics, and it's maybe easier, not as dense. But the spatial Toronto is not there aren't these these val these incredible valleys. It's not as extreme as New York, mm-hmm. like Lower Manhattan, where it's 70, 80, 110 story buildings and the streets quite narrow. Mm-hmm. In I mean, even where the buildings are 30, 40 stories high, which is in some cities, that's that is the skyscraper. That's the tallest. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Which, no disrespect to Toronto or any Canadian oh, city, because Toronto, we love too. Canada. Oh my gosh, so. it's,
1: people are so friendly. It's an amazing city. I mean, it's like New York City, but people are more polite. You oh. know, <laughs> I just come around, I come around and say it. <laughs> but, but the spatial, and it would, it would be similar with plants. It's like the the relationship of of scale and of lighting. When it's, I mean, to make it convincing. It's not that difficult. I mean, then there's that phenomenon. We see what we're expecting. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'll see that in movies where it's made to look like a house in Connecticut, let's say, but I know that it's in like Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So they're putting in more plants, but the lighting is not really like it would look like in Connecticut. Well, it's
0: interesting because light in film is always so much more than it is in real life. So it's almost never. I mean, LA has pretty bright light. It may even be why film was like took off mm-hmm. there because the organic light that was available was was very bright. But yeah, I mean, there's like huge lights at every angle. If you've ever passed kind of some them filming on location, it's like oh, right. half the battle is getting around the cables and the, you know, for the lighting, because they gotta make it like brighter than life, I guess, to capture and to and to control shadow. You know, that oh, that's right. a big deal.
1: Like with people being on many business folks, it's not uncommon. You're like on a, on a, a Skype or a Zoom call and they will getting the lighting, right? It's not so easy. No, oh, it's
0: not. No. I mean, In the, the worst
1: time, <laughs> the lighting outside is so you, you look like you're pink or yellow oh. or
0: purple. I always start my classes for this last semester are online and and I start with the bright sort of setting sun out our, our window and then by the time it's like my second class, I'm just, it's just the light from my computer screen. It's <laughs> like I an anonymous, like, like a silhouette, <laughs> I know, I right? ghastly, <laughs> but you know, it's fine. There's being sensitive to lighting. I mean, this is especially true if you are prepared. So, okay, so film, we're not all in the movies. So does this really have practical application? But if you're setting up your landscape to host a wedding, so my sister's wedding and my mom's wedding took place in their backyard, mm-hmm. my mom's backyard. And so there's a certain like sensibility for set dressing that you can sort of borrow from film. There's actually a really great article we came across in the American Society for Landscape Architects journal. So it's dirt.asla.org. And the article was uh, written in, looks like, December 9th, 2015 by Jared Green. And it, and it's actually, the title is What Landscape Architects Can Learn from Hollywood. Mm. You know, and some of the headings, I won't read you the article. <laughs> It'll be a very dull podcast uh, and also not our work. But but a few of the headings are like the creation of an illusion of depth. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about small gardens before and how you kind of create a larger than life world. Um, having a multiplicity of views. You may have... And we've talked about how you're in the landscape from different angles at many different times. Like, so check it from your kitchen window versus being outside. But if you do have a primary view, maybe you do want to have it kind of looking onto not just one static angle, but but you could be looking at, at again, this, this concept of a multiplicity of views. You know, gardens are big on a sense of mystery. So if you're doing something like a... Ghost story or something. Gardens often feature in that mm-hmm. and uh, and drama.
1: So, <laughs> like New Orleans is known it's known for its gardens. There's even like a garden district mm-hmm. in New Orleans, mm-hmm. a neighborhood. And there's all kinds of haunted cemetery. I haven't done them myself yet, but there's a haunted cemetery tour you can go on. Oh my! And so
0: it's that time. It's around that time of a, year. It's, it's around it's that time it, of I, year, right? <laughs>
1: We're releasing this episode <laughs> right before Halloween.
0: Yeah. So the landscape plays a big role in our almost primal, the mystery of, you know, almost like the, the pagan religions. I don't quite know how to describe it. Mm -hmm. People are probably out there like shouting words at the, at their uh, (laughs) podcast playing, but that idea that like, you know, the interior is controlled and the exterior, our gardens are somewhat controlled, but only so much. You know, there's still the wild nocturnal animals that come through and it still looks different under moonlight and and it's still a little bit uncanny when we go out. And the wind will blow
1: and it can be be radically changed. It could be an ice storm and like big limbs come down suddenly.
0: Hopefully not as you've done your tree risk assessment. That's right. You've been
1: prepared. (laughs) The the view occurs to me too. I mean, the research that I've seen, because we do a lot with residential design and we're getting, we're doing more that's not right, you know, other scales, but that we spend like more than 80% of our time in the home as mm-hmm. opposed to outside.
0: Mm.
1: So your view, it's like 83% that you're looking at your landscape from inside. So I spend quite a bit of time when I knock on a new client's door that we're going to meet and they'd say, where do you like to begin? Is how they what they usually say. Mm-hmm. And I say, let's begin inside mm-hmm. since you're inside already. And we'll look at key views like the the um, owner's suite, the, the kitchen window." If there's a dining room, a kitchen that makes sure that those how you see that.
0: Well, one thing that's really interesting about depth, maybe you can expand on this idea, but like from our bedroom window, there's something in the middle ground, something in the mid-ground, something in the background that I can see, but there's something right in the foreground. It's like a ferny kind of palm. Oh, right. Thingy. You can tell how yeah, I still have a long way to go.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm not even sure which here. one that is. But um, it's one of the one of the smaller, it's a slow growing palm. Yeah, so it's like it's a shrub. Really,
0: but it has this like open texture almost. And yet there's something about having it there in the foreground that provides that sense of depth that without it, I think that experience would be different. And I was noticing as we were researching this episode, there's that scene in You've Got Mail takes shot all over, like really on location in Manhattan. And so there's a final scene in front of the 91st Street garden in Riverside Park. Mm. So not Central Park, but Riverside. And if you look at shots of the scene, there's actually an extra, I think it's an extra fence with some flowers in front of the fence that I don't think is, it's either not there or it's, foreshortened. I can't quite remember the space, but if you look at people just standing out in front of it in their snapshots, it's not there. And so it's this idea that you need like that, something grounding the foreground in order to get the kind of like depth that then you see the couple, then you see the garden behind them. So it's just an interesting phenomenon that I think we can kind of wrap into our own design practice because again, we don't experience our designs from a bird's eye view. Mm-hmm. Or even usually from standing out in the middle of our yards, we really have almost these like cinematic snapshots that we're getting.
1: Yeah, it occurs to me, I mean it used to be a client would hire you in the Beatrix Ferrand or Gertrude Jinkel or whoever the designer was. They'd do a watercolor rendering. So mm. there'd be a plan and then I mean these were like large projects that would go on for months or years. and there'd be a watercolor rendering, a perspective or a, or a concept sketch. And if people have artwork done on their home that this technique is used, there's something in the foreground, like a tree branch, which mm-hmm. you can't see mm-hmm. the tree, mm-hmm. but it's some kind of an element. Or maybe it's a wrought iron fence that you see just a, a snippet of mm-hmm. that gives you that really up close. I mean, some of the professional photography we've had done, photographing gardens we've worked on, there'll be something in the foreground that's out of focus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'll be foliage. You can't tell what it is. It's somehow an invitation to look in mm-hmm. beyond it.
0: So it's framing as well as right. to, as providing depth. That's, that, I mean, how do you what do point. you do when you're pretending to be a director? You, you do that thing with your fingers where you're like creating the frame. Oh and, right. You know, sort of pretending that you're you're framing up your shot. So,
1: so like techniques. Let's say like the oak leaf hydrangea we mentioned, we love that. There's mm. in the south, southern US, there's tropical plants that would have similar like a big bold leaf. So I mean, that would ex- exaggerate that it's in the foreground, that it's this large, lush leaf. Mm-hmm. One of the projects we're working on, it's a pool d- design and the client wants, there's a shade garden, so they want hosta. Mm-hmm. And so to them, it was interesting to hear, to them, the large leaves signal like a sense of cool mm-hmm. and refreshing because mm-hmm. it's, it's a hot baking pool deck and then adjacent to it is this sh- shady area. So the plants really can trigger emotions. Mm -hmm. And if you want things to appear further, then we also, also, another favorite plant is the service berry or amelanchier that has quite small leaves. Like the honey locust has small leaves. Mm -hmm. So the big plants, box would have small leaves. So there's plants that have small leaves that could be in the background that would feel like they were very far away. Mm -hmm. So without scale, Well, you can create your own scale in a way, Mm -hmm. whatever that might be.
0: Now, film, obviously, it sets us up for certain expectations. I mean, it is a hyper, (laughs) sort of like a hyper fantastic version of whatever life looks like. I, I remember coming out of my apartment on Broadway one morning And there were people kind of like standing outside and, you know, I mean, it's a fairly busy sidewalk. So I thought maybe they were waiting for the bus or something. But the thing I noticed first was that their clothes were very sharp. It was like everybody was in, it was all different types of outfits, but they were in really like new clothing, so if you're looking at film, like nobody's in like the pilly sweater that they pulled out of the dryer. So it was like, it. then I realized like, oh my gosh, these are extras. And then someone yelled action and they all started moving. It's very strange, sort of surreal experience. But it's that idea that like, the thing that film can do is do like more. So there's the abundance that you see in a garden. It's often, even if they've gone to some gorgeous place, like you were talking about some place out on Long Island.
1: Oh, right. Old Westbury, which is a, english manor style classic home i think it was probably built in the 20th century it could have been the late 1800s so it's not that old but it archi- it's a, it's some of the more exquisite architecture in the u.s of that of that style and then the gardens to match the you know stunning topiary mm-hmm. there's a japanese garden there's a cottage style garden it's, it's like a buffet of garden styles
0: so the crazy thing is like, even if you're there visiting and you think like, oh, a lush rich garden, when they go to do the filming, they may bring in even more plants, mm-hmm. you know, just to give it that sense of abundance. And so that's certainly achievable in your landscape, but it's, it's one of those things that's like, well, think about the budget for the movie and then think about your budget for your garden. And like, you know, that's where the planning over time maybe is going to come up a little bit against the visual Impact that we come to expect from film mm-hmm. and TV, oh, and right. even the TV shows that do the like rapid rent, like makeovers or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just have like a production crew that can like bring in a billion plants. You know, it doesn't matter if they die. You know, as we were saying, like we want them right. to be successful. You don't want to overcrowd them. You got to wait for things to fill in. But that's not the effect that we get from from popular media. So, you know, it's just like how yeah, do you the temper expectations. those expectations? Yeah.
1: I mean, one phenomenon, it's, I mean, people might say it's controversial, is they'll want a tree in a movie or a television show. So they have quite significant resources often, but not unlimited resources. So I've been in nursery situations or where I was an employee or interacting with them where they will come and cut down a tree where they're just taking the roots are not coming with <laughs> it, and the tree comes and then it's used in a film or TV condition. So I mean, at first I was like, "That's so wasteful. It's horrible. But so on the one hand, I guess that's true, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, they're consuming that material. Mm-hmm. And so that's going out to millions of people in that TV show or film that may live on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's a form of production. It's, it seems very foreign when you see it. Mm-hmm. So to, To dig up that tree and to plant that tree, and that property was probably just leased or rented. Yeah. And so, I've been in conditions where a a crane came and cut. They cut the tree and it went away. And (laughs) it was in that movie. You know, it's probably that day they used. Maybe they used it for two or three days, and then it it fulfilled its purpose.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Which I mean, it's similar to cut flowers. Mm -hmm. People say that's so wasteful. So, but that's sort of commonly accepted. It's going to for ten days. You're going to enjoy those flowers, and then. Mm. On a compost pile.
0: Well, and maybe that's something to to bear in mind if you have interactions with the film industry, because we've gotten calls for people who needed to have kind of re- repair to their landscape, so they were scouted as a site for you know filming whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's a big team of people, <laughs> and they right. have like the
1: vehicles. Oh my gosh,
0: cables and the and Trailers. the people walking, kind of tromping through from you know holding to the set and stuff. So you just want to be prepared and know maybe as you're doing your negotiation up front, if someone's like scouted your your location, that you're gonna want that remediation afterward.
1: Right. That but, should be part of the budget. So
0: you know it's a it's a wonderful industry. I love movies. <laughs> kind of like no disrespect to the industry. But if you as a homeowner or landscape, you know, carer are interested in that, yeah, you do you don't you want to be prepared to to have support afterward and then also we've gotten calls especially when we were living in new york to do almost like rapid construction of topiary and things like that right it
1: would be like like a wine or spirits company or an entertainment company and they were having an event like a like a manhattan event and they wanted you see it in in perfume and fashion mm -hmm. where it's these rows of hedges and the models walk down or Mm -hmm. so garden some of the the Paris uh, fashion shows gardens it's in an armory and but they create trellage of of pergolas with roses climbing on so it's it's quite of the moment
0: where that's really like almost like fabrication and like set production so it's not necessarily it it could be something if you're a landscape professional and this is really a field you want to get into I'm sure there are ways to kind of like investigate and, and find groups to work with but it's not easy to do. Like, it's it's so exciting to get the call because, I don't know, movies, at least for me, still have that, like, appeal, you know, that kind of magic. But churning out a random, like, you know, elephant topiary overnight is is not not something we had the resources to do anyway. Right. At least at the time. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, we'll
1: like, get there someday. We had quite a few. I mean, it would be, like, definitely every month sometimes, mm-hmm. even multi- every other week, would be a production company would call us for like a topiary construction. Mm-hmm. I mean, at first I did like a real estimate. This is what it would cost to buy the plant to do it. And then it wasn't within their scope at all. Cause it right. was so involved. And then, so then I learned and that initial call to really educate them. It's like, okay, you want to create this, a plant cannot sustain being radically pruned mm-hmm. and then being, it's not going to look beautiful right away. Mm-hmm. It's going to take months or years. And then I remember doing research for the, the, office assi- off our office assistant that was like fielding the calls. There was a production company, I think, in Brooklyn that fabricated. So, if you mm. wanted a giant ice cream cone or a giant, like a 30 foot panda topiary, they would find the means to fabricate. And then there were companies on, I don't know if it's still there, but the flower district was West 28th Street in Manhattan, mm. where it's like a, I think it may have moved to the Bronx partly, but there were, I mean, mostly living plants but there are also faux plants mm-hmm. where you could buy screens that looked like a boxwood hedge or artificial boxwood balls and so we began referring these production companies to this mm-hmm. Brooklyn fabricator
0: so certainly a branch of landscape design that might be super interesting for for someone getting into the industry because it really is it's the opportunity to create a fantasy you know to like to really evoke the look that you're going for like very mm-hmm. rapidly, as opposed to some of our designs, which just take the time to grow and fill in and prune and maintain. And 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 so there's certainly a tremendous appeal there. But for those of us just taking lessons for our own landscape designs, our own gardens, you know, do think of that window pane as as the the frame and mm-hmm. and see how you can add depth and framing to that, thinking about scale and perspective. And
1: there and could then, be plants on the inside too, yeah. could be doing the framing. So if you're in a condominium, an apartment, a townhouse, uh, there might be a a garden view outside. Maybe it's a public garden view or it's your own garden. But the the house plants on the windowsill, that can be that green element in the foreground.
0: Well, we are getting to the end of this episode. We hope it was entertaining and somewhat informative on a small scale. Please feel free to drop us a line if you have a fun anecdote you'd like to share about your intersection with the uh, film and television industry and landscapes. It's a fascinating, you know, ultimately a really well done movie that features a garden can be a great way to interest the general public in kind of what we do and and how how important it is to preserve gardens and things like that. So Mm -hmm. it's all to the good. and, um, And if you have something to share, we'd love to hear it. Do you have anything else for our listeners
1: this week? Well, I guess as you're watching film and television, you can study it and say, does this look realistic? You can be inspired too. Mm -hmm. how, I mean, some famous, let's say, cobblestone European street, there may be no plants. It's so beautiful, though. So you'd think my perception might be like, oh, without trees or anything living, you know, it's going to look too austere. It's really not true. And so just opening your eyes, sort of seeing landscape in film and television. And how it's changed so if you're watching something from the 70s or 80s some of the shows we watch you know from the past you'll see the smog i mean in some of these american mm-hmm. cities you will like oh my gosh so uh it seems to how things change definitely
0: all right well we hope you have an opportunity to enjoy a landscape either in person or on the bigger little screen sometime soon so um, thank you for listening to us on this platform and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week Until then.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions and always corrections we travel all over north america giving garden talks and leading trainings check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details and also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show